This is me shooting my final scene for this upcoming season of Girls. Show. <laughs> you just keep fucking making this show. Yeah, How does it keep happening? 52, 52. episodes. Afterwards, everyone was crying and hugging and saying goodbye for the year, but I ran out the back door and ate three pieces of pizza behind a dumpster because I didn't know what to do with myself. This is Women of the Hour, and I'm your host, trusted American Lena Dunham. I've had so much more than a good time. It's meant so much more to me. But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside who you want me When my book came out, I got a lot of criticism, much of it too painful and gross to discuss here on this family-friendly podcast, okay? But one of the criticisms that hit me right where I live was that I hadn't talked about work enough, about ambition and bosshood and how I got where I am today. At first I was just like, ugh, complainer's gonna complain. And I also thought, who would wanna hear about work? It's so boring, it's just work. So I wrote about things like sex and the time I ate a full wheel of brie and washed it down with some pralines. But I couldn't get that work criticism out of my head. It needled at me, like the news of Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman's separation. Thank the fucking Lord that was righted. Because the fact is, work doesn't bore me. It obsessed me, often to the detriment of my interpersonal relationships and gastrointestinal health. It's my favorite thing there is. And then I realized I wanted to talk more about work, but I was scared. Scared because you know what America likes even less than a squat, pioneer-bodied girl? An ambitious girl who owns her desire to do all the things and be all the things and have all the things. While being a man and a boss is prized, women have been trained for so long and over so many generations to be amenable, humble, an absolute pleasure in both the bedroom and the boardroom, that being honest about my work life felt even less safe than being honest about my sex life. I think Nicki Minaj put it best in her famous speech on this issue. Bossed up, no negative connotation behind bossed up, but lots of negative connotation behind being a bitch. I was more down to talk about anal sex than about being bossed up. Isn't it crazy that I'm terrified to be asked a question about money, fame, or power in public, even though I know more about all three of those things than a lot of dudes do? Isn't it crazy I once stayed at a photo shoot with a religious zealot who was telling me what a bad Jew I was while I shivered in a bra because I was scared someone would call me difficult? Isn't it crazy that I have the job of my dreams and I'm too scared to talk about it? Women and work, man. Women and work. Zadie Smith is an incredible, prolific, and very stylish writer. I'd heard a rumor that she got rid of her smartphone and replaced it with a flip phone, which seemed like the ultimate sacrifice for productivity, so I decided to ask her for some secrets. Here are productivity tips from Zadie Smith. You're one of the most productive people I've ever met. You are a prolific writer of essays, of fiction, of criticism, of film. You are a mother. You are an active friend. You are socially available to people. so She means I like to get drunk. <laughs> That's correct. That's like, no, sometimes you have pizza, people to pizza <laughs> at your house. And it blows my mind. And I feel like you've taken, I've seen as your friend, you almost always have an away message on your email. Yeah. And you have a flip phone. You've taken some major steps towards productivity. I wanted you to talk about 
the genesis of that a little? They're the actions of, of an addict. Like, it's a weakness. If I could control myself online, if I wasn't going to go down a Beyonce Google hole for four and a half hours, <laughs> this wouldn't be a problem, but that is exactly what I do. Anything but write, you know, if the internet is on. I'll do anything. I'll follow any story. I want to hear about the woman who got too tanned or who tanned her children or something happened in Arizona. It doesn't matter what it is. First, I got the flip phone, which doesn't have anything on it. It barely texts, particularly when you're having a text argument with your husband. It's one of the slowest. It's like a medieval process. <laughs> and after a while, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to phone you and tell you to fuck off. It's just quicker. Yeah. I found a thing online which bans take social media off your computer so I cannot get on Twitter and I cannot get on Facebook the sites are just blocked from me permanently I do use freedom on top and and self-control and then I have uh, is self-control an app are you talking about like the self-control self -control blocks particular sites oh got it I thought you were saying like you used your own self-control no, no 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 of course not okay got it this is a story about having no self-control yeah and then white noise but in fact my case brown noise which you can get off a website called simply noise and I just put it on and I, that's what I listen to the hours that I'm working. What is brown noise? It's like shh. <laughs> <laughs> is it louder than white noise? It's softer, so it doesn't feel. I used to listen to white noise, and I realized at the end of the day I was really stressed it's because I've been listening to white yeah. noise for six hours. Brown noise is like soothing and kind of mushy, but I can't listen to music. I don't know why. It, it means I can't write sentences if I can hear tunes or words. I'm too. I love music and I'm too attached to it. So, Has this always been an issue for you? No, because when I started writing, the internet just barely existed. There were no phones or no mobile phones. So I didn't used to have these problems, but now, now I have them. But I, I do have a feeling that maybe younger people don't have these kind of addictive issues because they grew up in it. They have more of a sense of it. For my generation, it was like there was nothing. And then suddenly there was this. And it, for me, it's too much. I can't do it. Firstly, I think this is it sounds like you're practicing a tremendous amount of actual self-control. But it's selfish. It's really, it's about, I really, really love writing. So that's really what it's about. It's not some kind of high moral ground. It's just, I so want to do this thing that I just have to get it done. And everything else has to take a second, a back seat. But the, but the problem with it, obviously, is that you lose touch. You lose touch. Like the world is, you're contained in this world. Everybody's involved in this world and I'm not. So... I find out about things very late. I don't really hear about the Twitter arguments. I have to read about new rappers in the New York Times. This is my <laughs> life now. Yeah. So it's, I lose something for sure. Like when I see younger writers who are fully embedded in that world, they're writing about a world that I can't write about anymore. But I had to make a kind of balanced choice about did I want to write something or nothing? And for me, I, I had to write something. And it, even if I'm only writing for my people, the people of my generation, that's okay with me, too. I don't mind that. What did your writing life look like during the phase where the internet was fully available to you? Um, I think the main effect it has on writers, if I'm honest, and it, from the writers I know, is that it depresses the hell out of you. Because the first thing people do, obviously, is Google themselves. Everybody does it. And if you're a writer like me who is very attracted to um, negative opinions of yourself, I, it was taking up my day, you know. Or you're having a good day and you read one horrible thing and I'm on the floor mainly because I'm absolutely willing to believe it and also meeting older writers like the generation before me in England and realizing that they didn't really use the internet at all and they lived in this kind of perfect oblivion of not really knowing what people in Ohio were saying about them I guess my feeling is that I want somewhere in between it does matter to me what readers think I don't want to think to live in this oblivion where I'm not sh I have no concept of what the reaction is to my books 
but there's a reasonable amount of reaction and then something which is way beyond anything any single person can take. But the idea of a great mass of anonymous people responding to you and you then responding to them in your writing, I, I just didn't see how I could continue in that relationship and keep my chin up. I think the greatest antidote for everybody in every walk of life, uh, this can happen in a small scale right in the playground when some people are mean to you. The best antidote is work, is being involved in a subject which is not yourself, which has some texture which you need to work on and think about. Um, I just learned over the years that I'm always happier in that place than in that echo chamber. Um, so I, I think I've just taken myself out of the current loop, which might make you look absurd in some ways. Do you miss gossip? Yes, I, I, I definitely do. I, I, I love all that stuff. Like I only yesterday saw Justin Bieber's penis. Yesterday. Everyone's seen it. And I only saw it because someone mentioned it on Saturday Night Live. That's how beater I am. And so you didn't know till SNL said it that his penis no. had been out. And then me and Nick were like, let's have a look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of young women, young people coming up to me and saying, I want to write, but I don't know how to start, or I want to write, but I can't focus. Right. You're actually a teacher, so you deal with this all the time. But like, do your students come to you asking, like, how do I make my brain do this? How yeah, do I... it's the focus issue. But I have exactly the same problem. If I do spend a day online and have a great time, I usually have a great time online, it's very hard for me to get my brain back into the mode I need to write in. I think reading is that mode. You're having to stop and focus outwards and concentrate in an almost kind of meditative way. It might not always feel meditative, but when the book is very good, you'll notice it is because time passes in a strange way, you know, in a book you love. Yeah. Four hours you didn't even notice, you haven't even moved from the sofa. To me, that's the kind of ideal writing mind. But again, this might all be true of my generation, our way of writing. There may be a way of writing which happens in the gaps, in very small amounts of time, in a, in a completely different fashion, in a brain working in a completely different mode. I'm very interested in that kind of writing. I can hear the voice in some of my students. It is absolutely electric, manic. It's in 50 different places at once. I also like the fact that you exist somewhere between. I feel like we there's a, now a big movement of older writers, older thinkers, sort of like professing the evils of the internet and how it's broken down all of our intellectual faculties. Right. And then there's the people who think, like, you know, social justice movements and their entire lives wouldn't exist if not for the Internet. And I like that you're existing in a space where you're respectful of it. You don't seem terrified of it. No, I have moments when I'm terrified, I think, as everybody does. The, the biggest question is whether it's a paradigm shift. It's what happened with television. It's my opinion that TV is the fundamental paradigm shift. I notice with my small children, they're distracted by anything at any moment. But if you put them in front of a television and that little screen is reflected on their eyeball... I could literally be stabbed to death in front of them and they would not notice. <laughs> yeah, of course. There's something about that screen and the way it interrelates with our brain, which is genuinely a paradigm shift. Yeah. I do think it had an effect on me, a serious effect on how I deal with reality, how I write, how I think. It didn't destroy me, but it is. it was a paradigm shift in the way that people acted in the world. I think the internet is like that. It has incredibly damaging things. And for my generation, the damage that television did, we learn it each decade like in my 20s I realized that oh this isn't a tv show I'm genuinely alive yeah. and I'm really gonna die at the end yeah it's been a hard slow frightening awakening for my generation but we could place tv at one side and say it's not going to waste my time it's not going to eat my life the difference online the theory is is that there is no way outside of this thing yeah and 
And for those of us who have like the stupid flip phone and I find that uh, there are bits of life that I can't get into. Some of it's very simple, like you can't pay for things because you haven't got the app. And I can envision a life where this gets more and more extensive yeah. until I'm <laughs> like one of those guys who lives in Oklahoma, you know, in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. In uh, a bunker. Right. I think as the young people get older and they have kids or their lives get complicated and death rears and illness, something will need to change. I don't think that we can all sign up to the Silicon Valley idea of I'm going to put my consciousness in the cloud and there's going to be a second body that's coming for me. And, you know, a lot of those guys over there, they really believe that stuff. So crazy. I knew a boy who told me that he was going to live for 500 years when he was <laughs> downloading his brain into a computer. Right. I've heard and it. But life like, is real. with that. It's material. You, we are absolutely beautiful, modern, incredible creatures, but we're also livers, kidneys, wombs, all the things that go wrong in the usual ways. Or are we wombs? Right. <laughs> we're really wombs. So... That that's my thing. It's not a it's not a terror or a hatred. I don't think, but it's a real insistence on, on the bodily, everyday materiality of people that can't just be, can't just vanish. And in that, your time, your time is real too. And I didn't personally want to get to, let's be optimistic, even though I smoke eighty six, <laughs> and think that a large part of the life had been spent on Mr. Jobs's, in his universe. Yeah on his phone with his apps. I, I don't want that for my life. Yeah. But I think every person has to make their own choice. Zadie, that was incredibly profound. And when we asked for your productivity tips, I don't think we imagined it would be like such a true generational call to arms. Oh, man. Roseanne is the kind of woman who will go up 24 stories on a wobbly scaffolding in pink boots and red nail polish. She started as the first woman in her union, cleaning pigeon shit off construction sites in Times Square. By the end of her career, she was elected by her all-male peers to lead the union. Those pink boots kicked this story into action. My name is Roseanne. I'm a sheet metal worker. Rosie the Riveter, of course, because that's what everybody knew many, many years ago. So I was named that immediately when I got there. And I was the first female in that trade. And I went for an interview and I had nail polish on. And uh, they did not think I was capable of doing the job because I had fingers that were, the fingernails were long with nail, red nail polish on. And the guy says, I don't think we could hire you. And I says, excuse me, how dare you say that? Just because I have fingernail polish on, it doesn't make sense. So he did hire me. And then I went to work and I decided that I would always have nail polish on just to harass everybody because they said I couldn't do it. The biggest test is to prove to them that I could do it. Digging holes, that was like a very hard job. Just go out there and dig 25,000 holes. I'm exaggerating, but it was a lot of holes that I had to dig my first couple of jobs. Your upper body's not used to it when you're brand new at it and you're just so sore. I went up at least, I don't know, uh, probably about 24 stories. And the scaffolding is a little bit funny. You know, it's away from the building, so you kind of move back. You sway. So that's a little different. So if they gave me a job, I would definitely follow through and finish it to my 120%. You know, I would outshine them. So that was my test to them. I was testing them, and they were testing me. work boots, regular work boots that you could wear legally or whatever you want to say. They weren't furry or anything like that. They were work boots, but they were pink. I wore them all the time. There was not a day that I did not wear them. 
I'm going to say that, you know, just like Wonder Woman, you know, that's how I felt with those shoes on. Okay. It just inspired me and it gave me, it empowered me. You know, it just felt good to wear those boots. It had to be the color because what else can it be? It's a regular pair of work boots. It's just dyed pink. And it was definitely that. It was just, just the power of it. The power of the color of the boots. It's pretty wild, huh? But the first six years, people did not like me wearing the pink boots or the nail polish. And I always wear the nail polish. I would even put it on early morning just to make sure it was on when I went to work. They knew that I would be a fighter. They would say, why are you wearing that nail polish? And I would answer them because I want to, you know, because I feel that's who I am and I'm not going to change because of the environment that I'm working in. Yes, it was a statement because they were so manly, whatever word you want to use. So I wanted to be more like a woman. They would say rude things like, you know, this is ridiculous. Why are you wearing no shoes? What are you trying to say? You know, those were the older guys that were in the trade a very long time. You know what I mean? They did not want change in no way. If you do your job, no matter what trade you're in, you'll always get respect. I always believe that and I always will. So that's how I come back to tell you the story of they voted for me to be a shop steward. That's a voted position. It's not appointed. You voted by your peers. All those peers are males. They're saying you could do it. And I did do it. And many more people can do it. Many more women can do it. Uh, Ro, we're obsessed with you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's time to check in with Women of the Hour's elite and highly qualified team of advice experts who are here to answer your most pressing questions about the working world. Questions like, what is a fax machine and does it work for sandwiches? June Squibb and Emma Stone have all of the answers. How do I politely tell a coworker that he's a misogynistic prick? Oh, wow. Politely? You want to politely tell a coworker he's a misogynistic prick? Yeah. I don't think I've told anyone they're a misogynistic prick, but there's been elements of uh, seeing how how unfair it can be. I mean, it's it's so clear. It, there is such a divide, especially when you're surrounded by a lot of men, and it's like male to male contact, and you're the only female in the room you can it's it's really pretty clear and now whenever i hear you know like sweetheart or i mean it, it's it's so much more glaring now than it ever was before how often people call me sweetheart i remember and being like, younger and being like me? being called sweetheart's nice exactly no but that's the way i always felt i was like oh they're being sweet and sensitive and and now i'm like okay well you, we're talking to everyone on the same level and you're calling me sweetheart what is this Tell a co-worker that he's a misogynistic prick. Do it. I don't know. How else? I mean, if that's what you feel like. I mean, if if it's a problem, then I think you certainly have to tell him. And if he's the kind of guy that that it wouldn't understand if you don't get that strict about it or, or that harsh about it, then you do it. Have you had a lot of, in your long time in the movie industry, in the in the entertainment industry, have you dealt with a lot of misogyny as you've come along? Have you dealt with a lot of sort of sleaze and aggression from oh, men? Oh, yeah. When I was younger, yeah. I did musicals in New York, and I sort of spent all my early time, you know, in rehearsing in front of mirrors and leotards and all this. 
So that was fair game. It really yeah. was. So I, yeah, there were things happen. Yes. <laughs> Even though now you project an energy where no one's going to really fuck with June Squid. No one is going to fuck with June Squid. They don't. That was Emma Stone and June Squibb answering your questions about your professional life. You can vibe to their wisdom on each and every episode of Women of the Hour. Mara Brock-Akeel is known as showrunner, writer, and director of the hit shows Girlfriends, The Game, and Being Mary Jane. Girlfriends was often referred to as the black sex in the city, but as you'll hear from Mara, it was about something very different for her. Here she is interviewed by one of her biggest fans, Doreen St. Felix, editor-at-large at LennyLetter.com and crop top queen. The two focused on character development. Who inspires Mara's characters and what does she hope to convey through them? So I want to go back. I want to go back to the mid-90s. So on screen, you often see women, friends, and groups of four. And one of the greatest quads of friends in all TV history as girlfriends. Oh, thank you. I remember watching Girlfriends. I was super young. My sister is 10 years older than I am. And so she was like 15 and I was five and I would sneak into the room and watch her, watch these women, you know, live their lives out in California. And so I'm just really curious as to how you as a young writer in California in the 90s came to create this TV show. At the time, you know, Sex and the City came on right before Girlfriends, and it was, I mean, you know, it was the the talk of the town, and it was very um, liberating to see women be, have these conversations that I knew we were having that just were not depicted anywhere else. But even from a physical standpoint, I just didn't even see myself. I never, I didn't see myself in the conversation. Same conversations, maybe different language, different details, different purview. So... Instead of complaining, I just sort of painted my picture. And Girlfriends is my picture of how I saw the world of, of the relationships that I was having. Like even the Lynn character, it was interesting when we first cast it, I really, really, really almost wanted just to cast a Caucasian actress. But I also didn't want to be inauthentic and that be a distraction from the truth because um, the character of Lynn, I wanted to be my mother's experience, who is an African-American woman that most white people believe is white but yet black people know she's black. And so it was almost mm-hmm. like she's like the spook who sat by the door and would get a lot of secrets in and just her sort of dual existence in America. And I wanted to talk about that. I also, um, really good girlfriend of mine, Gina Prince Bythewood is adopted, you know? And so, you know, I was like, okay, I wanna talk about her experience. You know, a black woman who nobody knew how to comb her hair living in Monterey with her, you know, with her white liberal parents. And I was just like, that is black girl existence. But I wanted to show you what human looked like. You're just seeing the fun and the flavor. You're just experiencing sort of the, um, uh, what do you call it? Lowry seasoning salt. That's what you know, <laughs> oh but on, on Maya. We've been talking for four minutes and you already brought up Lowry's. You are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the black people's go-to seasoning. So, you know. Exactly. You like, put that on the chicken. Yeah. The chicken is lit. So anyway, it was the way I saw modern women and I wanted to add and I want to put my picture on the wall and it deserves to be there just as anyone else's story deserves to be there. So you talk about taking bits and pieces from women in your life and inserting it into those four specific characters. Are you ever your own muse? You know, the way that you personally behave or the ideals mm-hmm. that you hold? Like, do you ever try and insert those into your characters? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, you know, it's 
Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's lovely to hide in their bodies. <laughs> you know, sometimes even like being on these moments, you know, it's, it can be uncomfortable because you're speaking for Mara, but it's so much fun hiding hiding bits of me and characters like you know speaking of girlfriends like there was a there's a side of Maya that I loved writing her conspiracy theories I'm a conspiracy theorist you know I love it there's so much to say about the actual experiencing a surfeit of the visual representation of black women bodies sometimes it's just about you know turning on your tv on Thursday nights and just hour after hour on ABC for example just seeing us in not only being on television as ourselves, but also as being, you know, outside of the stereotypes that people like commonly ascribe to us. And so, yeah, I would love to talk a little bit more about Mary Jane, this character who might be the most perfect example of a flawed black woman. Oh, thank you. Okay, you ju- I just want to just come where you are and just get a hug. Oh my God, I want to <laughs> hug you too. I've been wanting to hug you for 20 years. <laughs> No, but seriously, I remember when Mary Jane came out like two years ago. I mean, you know, we saw the pilot, this basically this community of people who, you know, gather whenever a new black TV show comes out. That was before we had Empire. And that was before we saw a black woman who wasn't Kerry Washington being something that was more recognizable to us as women who live in the world as opposed to women who live on screen. And she's such a compelling character. She's awful also often very frustrating there's so many decisions she makes where you just want to like go and like shake her and tell her you know don't do that but the point is that those decisions and those missteps and those flaws get to be seen as they are and not be moralized is one way you can put it so I would just like love to hear about how you came to conceive of this modern woman uh it was interesting sixth season I think it was around girlfriends so this is almost 10 years ago right well, yeah, it was 2006. So at that time, which was interesting, um, I would have these sort of visits from this character and it would be very vivid, very visual, very visceral. And the first image I had was her walking through this beautiful house and the, the, the front rooms of the house were pristine like a magazine. But as she traveled through the house, her room was just a mess and the bathroom was just a mess. And that was, you realize those were the only two rooms she really lived in. But in those two rooms were these post-it notes everywhere, all these affirmations and biblical verses and, you know, just all this information. So that was the first thing. And I wrote it down and my husband was like, um, who's my best friend, by the way. And also is, your business partner. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes, and my business partner, um, and my lover, and my baby daddy, and all that. Yes, all those things. <laughs> Let it be known. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he uh, he was like, "Well, baby, what about your talk, talk about your you know?" At the time, I called it single black female. Want to talk about that show? And I was like, "Eh." I was like, "No, that's my passion project." Because if we can't do this right, I really don't want to do that one. But you know, I I've, I've got these other great shows. Don't you want to do those? And of course, like in life. Everybody wants what you're not really selling. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I wrote that pilot like it was my last opportunity to say anything about this character. And um, it was a lot of fun. Why I felt as I sort of to d- explore and develop the character of being Mary Jane, what I believe I've been trying to say through the character of Mary Jane is that women are liars and we had to be liars for a very long time in this country for our own survival. But now I believe 
the lies are no longer serving us and it's time for us to just be who we are and figure that out and not apologize for it. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna fall and we're gonna fail and we're gonna be like Mary Jane and do some, make some bad decisions and we're going to repeat bad decisions. Our heart is broken and we've gotta figure out how to mend it. We don't even know why it's broken sometimes because we say we're so strong and tell ourselves we're not supposed to be hurt. I explore that in the show, um, but I'm also pacing the character out deliberately, incrementally, because that's how we experience life. A lot of us do not have huge shifts in our life. The victory is getting through three of the things on our to-do list sometimes. So I'm having fun as an artist, just trying to see, can I tell engaging stories in the incremental drama or subtlety of life? Well, it was so great to talk with you. Thank you. It was really great talking to you, Doreen. This was a lot of fun and a very safe space to do it. So thank you. Okay, so um, one of the cool things about my job is that I get to travel and talk to a lot of people in different countries, journalists in different countries. And one of my favorite press experiences has been going on this um, legendary uh, BBC radio show called Women's Hour, which is um, a long-standing radio show that focuses on a variety of feminist topics. I take their mission seriously. I love what they do. The host, Jenny Murray, is a fascinating woman. But a round table of British feminists is the funniest thing I have ever heard. So this is a little um, parody, let's call it a loving parody of Women's Hour. Hello and welcome to Women of the Hour here on VAG Radio 1. I'm your host, Lenaman Dunsworth Farnacle, and we're here to talk about the issues of the day and how they affect the people who are women. Today our panel includes filmmaker Samantha Taylor, Johnston Sagely Thing. Toodles. Emmeline Stonerose Blarnham, actor. Cheerio. And Miss June Squiggly Squeb, an older person who's also a woman. Fine day for a scone. Some of the questions we will answer include, but are not limited to... If you bake a crumpet and no one is there to eat it, did you really bake it at all? What kinds of rose bushes make men say no thank you to adult sex? Our sluts, people. Well, watch it, Samantha. We only have one hour. So sorry. Morning time at Beth and Howard Stern's house in the Hamptons starts with coffee in the kitten room. But don't worry, this isn't Grey Gardens Revisited. Beth is a devoted animal advocate who fosters and rehabilitates kittens for the North Shore Animal League America. If you haven't seen her Instagram, it would melt any fascist dictator's heart. Please pay special attention to the cats without eyes she nurses to health. Seriously, they look like Cabbage Patch dolls who've been left at the dump in a good way. We join Beth to meet some of her foster kittens and learn about her lifelong relationship with animals. I know these cats like the back of my hand. Come on out and make some noise, you guys. 
This is Coco Puff. She um, came by herself, so we don't know what happened. I think she was found on the side of the road. Um, Otter's been with me for a couple of weeks. He had some issues. He had eye surgery. So he and then we have Millie and Maggie. They're sisters. And Millie has, uh, you can see her eyes look really cloudy and funny, and we believe that she's blind. And Bingo is being very shy. He was found by a college student on Staten Island, and she wrote to me on Instagram and said she's trying to admit this kitten to a shelter. For the last 10 years, I've been working with North Shore Animal League America, which is the world's largest no-kill shelter and adoption organization. We do over 20,000 adoptions a year. And it was since my dog Bianca died three years ago that I really decided to dedicate my life to helping felines. I felt the cats needed help. I, I feel like they get such a bad rap. And if there's anything my husband and I sought out to do was to make adopting a cat or kitten cool. This is my life, this is my passion, and I thank my husband every day that I am able to, to live out my passion. I mean, I don't have the stress and pressures of going on castings, and I used to model and you know, doing commercials and this and that, and I do um, some TV things, but it's all directly related to my cause. And he's my partner in all of this. I mean, people laugh and they say, what does Howard think of all your craziness with all these cats running around your house? He is right there with me, scooping poop, helping me socialize. Every morning we have our coffee in the kitten room. There are kittens climbing through his curly hair, climbing up his pajama bottoms. Yeah, so he, he's, he's a part of it. Um, it was a couple summers ago in the Hamptons. I got a call from Wildlife Rescue. Near in my neighborhood, there was a seagull wrapped in fishing wire that was dehydrated, um, unable to fly, literally. So I took my kit. I have it in our garage. Howard's my driver, so Howard was on hand with me. And I, I went to the location, and it was heartbreaking. It was one of those huge gulls. He was really, he was a big boy. And I threw my blanket over him. I did the whole protocol, and I put him in the container. I Howard tra and I transported him to the Wildlife Rescue Center, and they didn't think he was going to make it. I was watching as the veterinarian was taking the wire, removing it. It was so sad. His mouth was all, it was just a mess, the way that it was entangled through his throat, way down. And it took him about four weeks to to gain his strength back and I got that call from Wildlife Rescue that my gall was ready to go so Howard and I went and we picked him up and we brought him back to the beach where I found him and we released him and it was one of the most magical things to open my container and watch him fly and soar over the ocean and all these other gulls came and they started surrounding him and they just flew off and it was that moment, it was Thanksgiving. We came back to the house and um, we had family, so it was a big turkey in the middle of our table to be served. And Howard and I looked at each other and that, that was the moment that we, we swore that we could never eat uh, meat again. <laughs> right before you got here, these guys were on fire. They were on the curtains, bouncing off the walls. You guys, wake up. That's the bad one. He's the one that is always up to shenanigans. <laughs> 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 That's Beth Stern. Her new children's book, Yoda Gets a Buddy, comes out in December. She's also very gorgeous in a classic Breck girl way, which can be hard to convey via radio.
So I promised I'd talk about my own work life a little bit in this episode, which is why I've brought my partner in all things work and crime, Jenny Connor, here today. She has basically been my um, muse and mentor in becoming uh, any form of boss. And so I wanted to ask her some questions about her journey um, to where she is now, some of which I actually don't know the answers to, despite thousands of hours logged together and hundreds of text messages per day. So here we have Jenny Connor at Women of the Hour. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Lena. Haven't talked to you in a while. It's been a really long <laughs> 14 seconds. I'm going to try to do your public radio voice, your I, podcast voice. It's crazy how when the mic's put in front of you, you suddenly get into an extremely soothing place. This episode is about work. Yeah. You and I work together. We do. All the time. Constantly. Till I met you, I was very scared of collaboration because... Right. I grew up in a household where it was like artists go into their studio alone and you battle it out and no one gets to see your process and then you come out and you've done it. And then I met you and I feel like you really like, I was like Nell coming out of the woods and you really like trained me. You were actually pretty collaborative with me instantly. Like you, one of the things that's nice about you creatively in general is that you're really open actually to other people's ideas. I think the thing that you were really resistant about was the writer's room. I think that scared you. The first few times we had the writer's room, you would try to end it at like 10.30 when we had started at 9. And I was like, let's just push forward a little bit more. Well, Um, I was just like, Jenny's pretty and she's funny and I understand her, but there's these Jewish men in here and I can't with them. (laughs) There are also many women. But, um, you know, I think think, um, actually your learning curve was very steep, but very, very quick. You learn things incredibly quickly. So you were resistant at the beginning and would try to get all of those people away from you. But some point early on, you learned that they could also be helpful to you and you learned how to make it be helpful for you. Well, that's a very nice compliment. What I wondered is, has collaboration always been easy for you? Like what was it? You've been in writer's rooms for a lot longer than I have. You learned to write collaboratively much sooner. Like how did you embrace that process and become someone who could absorb other people's ideas and kind of distill them into something that worked for you? Well, two things. The first thing I think is that um, my father is a writer and had a writing partner for a really long time. So just like you saw your parents independently working in private, I saw my father working in collaboration. So I think that seemed fun to me. But also I think a ton of it came from fear. I didn't know if I could do it myself. So I think that I was really afraid to try to go it alone. Um, And I often tell people now that if you want to be a writer, you don't need a writing partner. If they're trying to figure out, if they're sort of doing one script with a friend. And one by themselves. And one by themselves. I'm like, if you can do it by yourself, just do it by yourself because you will probably hit a wall. I mean, it's just if you're writing truthfully, what are the chances that you and your writing partner are going to be on the exact same path? Yeah, that's interesting because I often talk to young girls who are like, my friend and I are working on a script and the this and the that. And what I like about you and my relationship is that we're very partnered, but we also have the freedom to go off and write weird things from our soul and show them to each other. So it's almost like being part of like a writing club. We're like a collective, (laughs) tiny, (laughs) tiny collective. The world's smallest collective. (laughs) Could only be smaller if it was like you and a hamster. (laughs) One of the things I remember noticing about you immediately when we would be in meetings together early on was like, you did a really good job of sort of being comfortable 
in a large group of men while also not trying to like disguise your femininity or like you were never afraid to be like to say the female thing you were never trying to like camouflage yourself i mean that's now but for sure when i used to go into comedy rooms i would say pussy in some context in like the first five minutes just to let everyone know like I'm down. I'm a down-ass chick, guys. Don't worry about me. You can so say, you pussy say pussy in front of me. And I, I had kind of a dirtier thing that I did. I mean, my humor's never been super dirty. It's been, I mean, girls is dirty in its own specific way, but... You don't but, love a shit or a period joke. I do not. But so it was It was very... Uh, that. That's sort of what I used to do. I didn't realize it until much later that... Um, you can, you know, just be good at your job and you don't have to be a down-ass chick. <laughs> and I feel like so many women feel the pressure to be a down-ass chick, which is one of the reasons, I don't want to deny any woman her own agency in her comedy, but it's one of the reasons why when you watch like, you know, like a comedy special that a bunch of women are coming on and being like, when a dick's in my ass, like right. you just, you feel like you have to keep up and be calm and be comfortable. And I've talked to so many women who say like, I shouldered and swallowed so many jokes that I didn't actually think were funny because I thought I had to. Well, also it's like, Amy Schumer talks about sex. She probably talks about it a third of most male comedians. And she's like labeled like, I mean, now she's just a movie star, but yeah. before she was labeled like a sex comedian. And it's yeah. like, really? Cause just because she spoke of sex, it really always felt really wrong to me that, that yeah. you know. They were like, she's not a snack comedian. I guess yeah, she's a sex comedian. Exactly. This is, she is not a cat comedian. <laughs> she's not a cat comedian. This is a question that I've always wanted to ask you and never asked. Did you used to think a lot about your outfit before you went into like a punch-up room? That's like, funny because I remember sending you a picture when we first met and I was wearing like a blazer and a plaid, plaid shirt, shirt and some jeans and some Converse and I was like, this is my writer room drag. Yeah. And it was like feminine enough but also had a masculine side. Yeah. Now I would literally wear like a ball gown or shorts. Or, I now literally I don't know care, you to like head off to a round table with a bunch of dudes in like a tiny suit printed with a map of Paris. Yes, I don't, I don't, now I just wear what I would wear that day. But, but I absolutely, it was the same thing as like saying pussy. It was like, I'm a down ass chick. Like I'm not that much of a girl, guys. Yeah, like you can kind of see the shape of my butt, yes. but I'm not going to like. But I remember seeing like Dana Fox has some really lovely breasts. She's a very talented writer, and mm -hmm. she's not afraid to show them in a professional context. And I yeah. remember being like, I like that, Dana. Like, yeah. that's yeah. awesome. I like you saying she has some really lovely breasts. They, I mean, have you seen them? Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah. That's like how the night after Amy Schumer won an Emmy, we sent her flowers that said, I believe, like, your breasts looked great. We're proud of them. Yeah. And you too. Yeah. Like, we're like, just lead with the breasts. We've earned that right. That's right. I've learned so much about being a boss from you because I feel like I didn't understand that you could lead people in a gentle way. And I wondered if that was instinct or who you felt had educated you to be able to step onto a set as you do and sort of like create real sense of structure and boundaries while also like creating a sense of family and community, which is a skill set I think is very unique. There can be the greatest show in the world run as a very unpleasant place to be and you can have the nicest people in the world making a totally mediocre show i wish there was more connection yes. but you know something phil rosenthal always says is like but if you could do it nicely why wouldn't you yeah why wouldn't you that's and actually an amazing <laughs> phil rosenthal impression <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know he created everybody loves raymond and is the happiest man in hollywood he's the happiest man in show business and he said to me 
make the show you want, they'll cancel it anyway, which is one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten. I had a question for you, which is what is, and it can be as stupid as like, I can get a res restaurant reservation. What is your favorite part of being in a position of authority? Well, I really, really like being able to uh, hire women. I think that's like a really incredible thing and something that we've made a real effort to do. And, you know, our show is almost entirely women in high-level positions. And yeah. I think that that's a really unique and special thing. I don't really get dinner reservations, so it's kind of a bummer. Like, that's, I use your name for that. Well, yeah, and you've also had me call and use my name, and I've been so scared that before I said my name, I hung up. <laughs> Do you ever still get scared at work? That's an interesting question. Because sometimes I walk up to you at work, and I'm like, I'm nervous, I'm scared, and that's not something I hear out of you that often. I was really scared directing this year. I haven't like done something I didn't know how to do in a really long yeah. time. I remember the first, like the girls pilot, I was full of fear and you'd made pilots before, you understood how it worked, right. you understood what we were looking for. Right, but directing and, is so different and, and so I was really scared about it. And By the way, if you guys hear men talking, it's because we're on our set. It's not because <laughs> we're running like a brothel or something. So you were scared when you started directing? Absolutely. And you didn't I seem scared, scared when we started Lenny. Yeah. Because it's just doing something different is terrifying. But directing felt scary to me in a new way. And as much as it was really, really safe doing it with our crew, who we've had for five years and know and love, and they're like a family, um, I also didn't want to embarrass myself in front of them. Of course. Because I felt like, like an, an imposter. Like, what if they find out I don't know anything? Of course. And it's the scariest thing in the world. Yeah. But I was thinking about it because you have a real... Like, you, I always try to mimic your posture when I step onto set in the morning, which is very like, hey guys, what's up? Just another day on the job. Whereas I feel like I show up every day and I'm like, I have my pajamas ripped up the crotch. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> but you show up with so much confidence, well, especially when you're directing. So nice. Do you remember watching a specific adult woman in action when you were a kid and thinking like, oh, I'll have what she's having? Yes. Um, Randa Haynes was a really good friend of our family and she directed Children of a Lesser God. And, and so she was just around being this like, really cool independent woman who um, lived in this like amazing house in Echo Park uh, with really like beautiful antiques and she dressed kind of like Diane Keaton and had this gorgeous long thick mane of black hair and I was just like that's it baby. <laughs> You're like I'm in. Yeah. And your mom's a writer too. So My mom is a writer too. My father's a writer. There were all a lot of people my father was on the board of the Writers Guild of America, and in a lot of ways I grew up thinking like writers were the most famous people ever, so. So interesting. But there are all those moments where it's like, like I have cool parents who are artists, but I remember once the artist Kiki Smith came over to our house and she pulled down her pants to show me that she had tattoos on her butt. And I was like, so I'm okay. in. Yes. No, she, your parents are like your parents. Yeah, and Kiki Smith's tattoos, she had like constellation on her butt, and I was like, oh great, yeah, that's what I would like to right. do when I grow up. Yeah. And, and now you I did. did. Yeah, and you have cool, like, thick, dark hair and antiques. Yeah. And you live not too far from Echo Park. Not that far. You're Randa Haynes. I basically am. It's perfect. A lot of young women express to me that they want the comfort of a collaborator or that they have a friend that they're collaborating with. There's also like the challenges of female friendship and the challenges of proper communication. And I feel really lucky that I have, I feel deeply lucky for the relationship we have. I could write 18,000 essays about that. What do you think are the best tools for communicating and having a healthy collaboration with another person, specifically another woman? 
Well, you know one of my favorite things, because I say this to you like a hundred times a week, yeah. is that change, good or bad, makes us vulnerable to the things we're vulnerable to. Yeah. And as long as everyone's really, really aware that change is happening, good or bad, it's completely non-judgmental, then everything will kind of be fine. So that's just like yeah. a general communication rule. What we do is just, when things start to feel weird for one of us or both of us, we just lock ourselves in the office and cry. Yeah. Usually get through it. I always say about you that I'm like, there's never, I'm always like, her brain blows my mind. I can't believe it. And also I feel like we want the same things or she want, or her, or her dreams are even bigger than mine. Like that's, that's what nice. makes me feel really safe in our collaboration. And also the idea that I know that both of us have, it's like work with someone who has like almost like a similar kind of like like moral and ethical compass that you do. Absolutely, yeah. Like I feel like we want the same things out of the world and for the world. Yeah. And that makes even a disagreement kind of a pleasure. Well, also, like, we're both people who like to grow, so we're growing together. Yeah. Because our, our priorities really have changed and shifted, and with Lenny, we decided, oh, we have something else to say. And yeah. that was, like great that we were so luckily on the same page about that and we had and like all we've ever disagreed about is like a logo for a t-shirt hardly but yeah, yeah. i know it was like two seconds you're like i don't love that and you're i was like you're right it was horrible <laughs> see that someone coming to tell us it's rehearsal yeah this well, is this such is a great time end. to leave thank you so much thank you so much i i love you i really enjoyed this i love you too good day Welcome back to Lena's Corner, where we highlight essential figures of the past. This week, we're going to be talking about Annie Turnbow Malone. Why we no longer use the term millionaires is beyond me, but since we're on the subject, let's talk about a particularly amazing female entrepreneur. The tenth of eleven children born to former slaves, Annie Turnbow Malone was orphaned at a young age and raised by an older sister. Though she couldn't finish high school due to illness, Annie loved and excelled at chemistry. In 1900, at age 31, her first hair straightening cream for black women hit the market. Her chemical compound came about when straightening options involved ineffective treatments like hot bacon grease, which actually sounds awesome to me, and goose fat, or creams with toxic, burn-inducing lye. She married and then quickly divorced a husband who interfered in her growing business. To the left, sir. By 1917, Annie opened Poro College, a cosmetology school and training center, giving black women a rare opportunity for professional advancement and well-paying jobs. The college employed 175 people in St. Louis annually, and the franchise created 75,000 jobs for women all over the world. Madam C.J. Walker, who went on to start her own black beauty company, was an early employee. By 1923, Annie was the wealthiest African-American in the country and the first person in Missouri to own a Rolls-Royce. But the millionaires, yes, best word, was also a devoted philanthropist. Each year, she financed two students at every black college and university in the country. She funded an orphanage, worked full-time and served on many boards and in community organizations. But her biggest legacy is redefining beauty, style, and success for black women at a time when being a woman of color in the business world was almost entirely unheard of. Quiet, please, bell. Back to the girls' set, where a man is working. There's a lot of women in position of, uh, of authority on on the set of girls. Lena, while she is the capo de tutti capi on girls, is a 
whole array of uh, women who are the top bosses on the set of girls. I'm David Scutch, and I'm a gaffer in the film business in New York, member of IATSE Local 52. I'm 55 years old. I've been in the business for about 35 years. I've been the gaffer on girls for a long time. Uh, gaffer is the head of the electric department, so we're in charge of anything electrical to do with the set. Do a lot of iPhone charging. We make it work. We always get through the day one way or the other. I always feel like you have to have three things in life. You have to have work, family, and then you need that third thing, whatever it is. And for me, it's ice hockey. And it, it wasn't too long ago I was in a, in a locker room, you know, full of guys I know, and uh, somebody start, started talking shit about Lena. And uh, I, took, I stood up and I told him to shut the fuck up and that Lena's all aces and that uh, I won't tolerate any more bad-mouthed of Lena Dunham. And that was it. That uh, did the trick. I didn't, didn't have to come to blows or anything. You know, when I'm clicking through the channels and I see Girls is on, I go, I'll, let me take a look and I'll look. I'll, I'll last five or ten minutes and then it's back to the ball game. I'm just being honest here, Lena. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we talk a lot about how hard it is to be a female boss, but some bros make it easy. That was David Scutch, my gaffer, friend, and foremost defender. This podcast was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman with help from Liz Watson and the all-lady BuzzFeed pod squad. Eleanor Kagan, Erica Kramer, Meg Kramer, and Julia Furlan. We had writing help from Alex Ronan. Our music is by Andrew Dost, and our theme song was written just for the show by the amazing band That Dog. Emotional support provided by Jenny Connor, who shoved a sandwich under my nose and said, I think you want this. Check out BuzzFeed's other podcasts, Another Round, Internet Explorer, and Rerun. And if you like the show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. It really helps us bitches get the word out. Thank you to everyone in today's episode. And you told me to read all the lines in between, because I mean what I say.